Welcome back to Friends and Neighbors. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and this week, music industry executive, podcaster, and truth teller, Mike Joseph. Dominant American culture prefers its men more Harrison Ford than Harry Styles, more Paul Newman than Paul Rudd, more John Wayne than Elton John. You know, fists first, feelings later, bravado, machismo, muscles, strong and silent. Mine have always been the guys with their hearts on their sleeves, though. They express themselves. They talk about difficult things. Their courage is in their vulnerability which is how I came to meet Mike Joseph. Now, I'm sure we bumped into each other at some crowded Rockwood Music Hall show in the early aughts, but it was his podcast, Detoxicity, that stopped me in my tracks. On the weekly show, Mike talks with radically authentic candor about what it means to be a man in the 21st century. Each week, Mike and guests like Toad the Wet Sprockets' Glenn Phillips and Semisonic's Jacob Schlichter talk about creativity, psychology, and sexuality with no reservations. Mike makes a safe place to get real about anxiety, depression, insecurity, and uncertainty, warts and all. On Detoxicity, Mike and company share straight talk about the full range of the human condition. It's not dark or dour, just, well, real. Like Mike. As director of label management for The Orchard, Mike manages physical album sales for major artists like BTS, Jason Isbell, and Kelsey Ballerini. He's written for Pop Matters, Ultimate Classic Rock, The Boombox, and his own Pop Blurred. He put time in at the legendary Tower Records. But it's in his role as an outspoken advocate for mental health that Mike makes a major difference. On his show, and as a speaker at schools and industry events, Mike tells the whole truth about his own experience with depression and anxiety. And in sharing his story, he encourages and inspires others to do the same. He did me anyway. His voice was one of just a few that lent me the courage to come clean with my own anxiety, depression, and dependency. This week, Mike shares his often challenging and ultimately uplifting journey from a difficult childhood in Brooklyn to being named a Billboard Pride Power Player. Mike begins by explaining when and why he decided to live fully and completely out loud. I find myself consistently befuddled that there aren't more people sharing stories the way that I am. I made a commitment to myself. It was just like, look, you got to be honest about stuff. I think it started seven or eight years ago when I started sharing my experiences of dealing with trauma and having mental health issues. And people were coming to me saying, hey, this is something that I can relate to. I've been through this. And I realized that I could help people. And I guess maybe before I thought that helping people would be something a lot more difficult than just talking about myself. Yeah, yeah. And it turns out that it's not really much more difficult than talking about yourself because people, if they see some kind of connection with themselves in your story, will be moved enough to maybe sort of further their own quest for assistance or acceptance or whatever it is. Like you just need somebody to push the door open a little further for you. And I'm happy to be that person. Yeah. Well, you did it for me. 
thank you. I don't take that lightly at all. It was just the simple act of saying, I'm just going to talk the truth. I think there's so much posing or hiding or concealing or whatever. Instead of being like, no, we're human. We suffer. And here's what I got. What do you got? And oh yeah, that feels like me too. Right. And then all of a sudden there's space for everybody. There's space for each other. There's space for all kinds of things that just, there isn't if everyone's in an ad sales call, you know? Yeah. I think people are afraid to be themselves. People are afraid to confront things in their past, in their present, in their future that make them uncomfortable. And I think we all collectively got to get over this discomfort. We got to get over this fear and we got to have real conversations. And that's really all it is. It's conversations that maybe are uncomfortable, that there will be trepidation, maybe at least the beginning stages of having them, but they need to be had in order for us to understand and get along a little better. Take me back to BK. The really critical years, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, describe the sights and sounds and sort of your life in Brooklyn around that time. As a kid, it was fire hydrants and ice cream trucks and going to the park and having block parties and setting off firecrackers on the 4th of July. As a teenager, as I started to know more of the world, and I also think the neighborhood changed a bit. There was some of that stuff, not all of it, but there was also a sense of fear, I want to say, or a sense of danger Yeah, that was constantly looming. A sense that you had to watch your back, a sense that you mm-hmm. had to, you couldn't be carefree. Some of that was definitely related to the changes that happened in my neighborhood specifically over the course of the 80s and 90s. And some of it was due to being seven years old versus being 14 years old and knowing a lot more about the world. What neighborhood was it? I grew up in East Flatbush, primarily. I lived in a couple of different places. I was born and initially lived in Bushwick, moved to East Flatbush when I was three, left for a couple of years when I was eight, and then came back when I was 11. You did Detroit for a quick minute, right? Suburb of Detroit called Southfield. My question originally was, tell me your nuclear family experience, but there really wasn't a nuclear family experience. There wasn't. The mom-dad thing really only happened during the three years that I was in Michigan, at which point I was already accustomed to the extended family experience that I had in my really early years, which was primarily my maternal grandparents, you know, my grandma, my grandpa, a series of aunts and uncles, cousins, family, friends. You hear about a lot of immigrant families, which we were, having these multi-generational houses. And our house was a multi-generational house. Kids, grandkids, cousins, visitors for the summer, just all sorts of people in and out all the time. The typical sitcom experience, I really (laughs) only experienced a very small smidgen of that for three years with my mom and my, the person I thought was my father at the time, who later turned out to be my stepfather. A robust, loving community is one of the things that protects and keeps us all feeling safe, yeah. right? Yeah. But then the uncertainty of living here or who's in charge or who's modeling masculinity or femininity, who's parenting, sounds like you had a rich, robust, loving community potentially, but not a lot of stability in terms of what house, which parents. It was a lot of jumping back and forth. And even during the three years that I lived in Michigan, I spent my summers in Brooklyn. My stepdad and my mom were in charge of me eight months out of the year for a three-year period. 
And then it was sort of back to my grandparents. Even when I returned to Brooklyn as a tween, I guess I was 11 years old, my grandparents owned the house that I grew up in, but the people that were in charge of me were my aunt and her husband. I sort of had three different parenting experiences before I was 18. In retrospect, I'm sure that just is obviously unsettling. But no, do you, yeah, was that your experience in the moment? I mean, it had to be. I remember flying back and forth during the divorce and being like, could we stop flying everywhere for a minute? I don't know that I thought of it very much at the time. My experience up until moving to live with my mom and my stepdad was that my grandparents did the parental type things. And then there was a change in that. And they were in the picture for summers and over the phone because we didn't live close to each other. New York and Michigan are a 12 hour drive apart. So I think I just kind of rolled with the punches when I was young, but it wasn't until much later that I realized how unsettling it all was and that it was very common for some people to live with the same two people until they were 18 or 21 or 25 or whatever it was. It's almost like the absence of a reliable narrator. It's true. I've been thinking about that a lot recently as I've begun to foster a relationship with my birth dad and members of of his family is that if there was someone besides me available to narrate the story of my life, there isn't because there's nobody that can walk through the timeline with any any kind of consistency. Why were your parents not together? And why were you not with your parents? My mom and my birth dad were engaged. My dad, while my mom was pregnant with me, cheated on my mom and got another woman pregnant. It's weird because I'm named after my father. My dad recently has told me that he went to the hospital. I was born three months premature. I was very sick. You know, I I came pretty close to dying as a baby and he came to give blood for a transfusion And after he donated the blood, my mom's parents told him not to come around anymore, that Mm. he wouldn't see me again. And that was that. My mom, after she had me, she had already enlisted in the service and she went back into the service and left me in the care of my grandparents and uh, settled in Michigan with my stepdad, who she also met in the service. And they began to have their family and at some point sent for me that did not work out very well. I think there was some bitterness on my mom's side with relation to the situation between her and my birth dad. My stepdad was, to put it kindly, he was abusive. Mm. There was definitely a sense that I didn't belong there. So I ended up coming back. To be sent home, as it were, or to be sent back to your grandparents must be a real big painful spot forever. In one way, it was a relief. And I think I've thought more of this, or at least consciously thought more of it as I've gotten older, but it's like, why didn't it seem like they wanted me? I'm sure when my mom left my dad, it left me feeling like, what did I do? Right? Because that's invariably what a, I mean, Jesus, if you're eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, that's pretty much the only math you have. Right. That ends up being the work, isn't it? To just be like, well, I didn't do anything. It's not my fault. Which I still am working through. I, I think I've gotten to a certain point where objectively I can say, hey, I, I did nothing wrong. Right. But there is still a part of me that feels very much abandoned. Yeah, the body remembers it differently than the brain. Well, at some point, the conversation gets a little lighter here because we both find music, right? Yes. <laughs> what was the song? What was the mechanism? Were you an AM radio guy? Like, where did you find the music and what was it that really lit you up? Oh, my goodness. I was very fortunate 
to grow up in a house full of music fans. My grandmother loved music. She always would sing around the house. My aunts and my uncles were teenagers all at this time or in their early 20s. And they were going out to, to discos and clubs oh, yeah. and bringing home records. And they had their little DJ gigs and all that stuff. So I ultimately inherited a wealth of, of records that my aunts and uncles left behind when they became adults and moved into their own situation. Right. I had an interest in music at a very, very, very young age. Christmas 1981, I was five and I got a Fisher-Price record player because uh, I was already messing with the adult stereo and they were like, uh-uh. Hands they were off. like, you're not breaking this. Uh, <laughs> we already know how destructive you are. So they gave me my own little toy record player which played real records. It wasn't like a full-on toy. It plugged into the wall and, and played records. Was it like a plastic clamshell kind of thing? Sort of. I see it on eBay all the time and toy with the idea of buying one just, just to have it. Yeah. You know, it was a relatively durable, like plastic toy. I mean, I had it for a number of years and I was able to raid the collection of old 45s that my folks left behind and just sort of play whatever was in the house. And from the time I was maybe six, I was accompanying relatives to the record store and buying records of my own, oh. whether it was, you know, Ebony and Ivory or yeah. Billie Jean or Every Breath yeah. You Take or, or all of that stuff. I would get up on Saturday or Sunday morning and listen to American Top 40. And I yes, yes, watched, me too, yeah. Casey Kasem. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And would watch all of the music shows, Soul Train yeah. and American Bandstand and Solid Gold and all that stuff. I was going to say it was Solid Gold, your yeah. era, totally. Yeah, yeah. totally, yeah. totally. And I, I was just super, super invested in all that stuff. As you said, Billie Jean, I thought how lucky we are to have that music be so contemporary at a certain time in our lives because it's yeah. so undisputably badass. I'm still somewhat in the loop when it comes to contemporary music. And I just got to say, I don't think anything compares to 1983, 1984, just the convergence of so many different genres of music and everything just sounded fresh and new. It's just an amazing time. Hall of Notes, Kiss on Your List, that song, man. Mm. I had that 45, bro. I played it so many times. My dad came upstairs into my bedroom and broke it over. <laughs> he hates me telling that story. And it's cool, dad, we're square, but it's a great story. And I also, have forgiven I, you, father. Yeah, I have. I probably played it <laughs> nonstop for like a couple hours. Do you know what I mean? I mean, that's just what music did at that age. Yeah. Did it for me. Yeah, did it for me too. Same record player. Mine was blue, like a light blue. Mine was this really weird orangey tan kind of thing. Yes, of course, because nothing goes better with orange than tan. It felt like late 70s fashion. It was a very autumnal looking record player. What was your role modeling for a man? As we're thinking of the era, I'm thinking like Richard Pryor, Christopher Reeve, right? Like Don Cornelius, your grandfather, maybe. I don't know. Did you piece it together? Unfortunately, the majority of the masculine influences that I had access to growing up were violent in one way or another, whether it was, you know, my stepdad who was physically abusive or my grandfather who was verbally, mm. you know, he was loud. He reminded me a little bit of George Jefferson. He had a big mouth. He used to be a boxer when he was young. Uh, and he thought that he could win every argument by being the loudest person in the room. Ugh. I didn't have very many male teachers. Most of my teachers were women. Uh, interesting. There was no gentleness. There was no warmth. I don't recall hugging uh, mm. another male member of my family until I was in my late 20s. 
even now, many of my relatives, my mom included, are very uncomfortable with physical affection. And I definitely didn't get that growing up. And there was just always a sense that boys don't cry. Men are tough. You got to learn to fight. Here's a punching bag. There is all this stuff that doesn't lend itself well to any kind of internal exploration. Is there a cultural component? Is it generational? Because certainly generationally, like... It's both. Yeah. It's both. I mean, you know, my grandfather was born in 1929. And, you know, my family, again, is an immigrant family. I am the first American-born member of my entire family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Some of it was a cultural machismo kind of thing. Some of it was growing up in another country, maybe thinking that some Americans were soft. A lot of black and brown cultures, at least at the time, didn't necessarily prioritize any kind of of sensitivity or personal growth or or anything that wasn't uh, veni, vidi, vici kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. The examples of a more soft or more fluid masculinity that I saw were really through media, through sitcoms and through music and and that kind of thing. You think of things like Die Hard, Bruce Willis. Even the A-team, which I loved, right? B.A. Baracus was not solving problems with a hug. Right. <laughs> or a handshake, right. right? You certainly weren't seeing dudes hug, let alone hip-hop hug that I can yeah, think of. Yeah, not at all. It's interesting because Michael Jackson, because of his higher voice and because he's beautiful, MJ was a, actually a pretty good example for both of us. Because remember, the very first Rolling Stone I picked up in the airport in the middle of my parents' divorce was the one with him on the front, man, in that red and white striped t-shirt. I bet you know right. the issue. Yeah, I know the issue very well. Absolutely. The less conventional definitions of masculinity were on display really only in media and not so much even in film because there was the whole like Rambo, Rocky, like right, you said, right. Die Hard, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, it yeah. was sitcom television. And even most sitcoms had sort of a domineering father. The way that I saw it when I was growing up, in order to not be the stereotypical man, you had to either be white or gay because the knock on people like Michael and Prince and all of the musicians who were pushing the thresholds of masculinity was like, oh, they're not really men, they're gay. As if they're mutually exclusive, first of all. Right, (laughs) right, right. When I was that age, when I moved to suburban Philadelphia, they started calling me Fagner. And the worst thing you could say to a young boy was yeah. to suggest that he was not heterosexual. Yeah, absolutely. They call me Ben Gay, too. Oh, kids are cruel. Let's pursue some dreams here, Mike. So when you're moving out of teen years and you're thinking about getting out on your own, what's the dream? What's the vision? What's the plan? I moved out when I was 17. I wanted to work in journalism. I wanted to work for Rolling Stone. I remember taking an interview with The Source because um, a lady that worked at The Source, Kierna Mayo, who I think is now the editor-in-chief of Ebony or one of those magazines, my whole goal was to write about music. I want to write reviews. I want to yeah. interview people. And then my secondary goal was I wanted to manage or own a record store. Ah. Those have always been, to this day, magical places for me. I ended up getting a job in a record store after I graduated high school and worked my way up there and then got a job at another record store and worked my way up there. Fast forward, you managed to do both, bro, and then Yeah, it's funny because I look back on my childhood and particularly during the three years that I was with my mom and my stepdad, I think they tried to actively and passively discourage me from being 
as into music as I was from uh. taking away my record player, which I never got back uh. to forbidding me from writing about music, all this other stuff. I think it was part of a larger plan that they had to sort of defeminize me and what they thought was de-gay me. Uh. Let's get him into sports and let's get him into fights and doing manly stuff. Which I realize in retrospect that that was kind of a planned out kind of thing. But mm. looking at it now, it's like, okay, who's got the last laugh? Because I have lived the last 30 years of my life working in music and have been successful at it, despite the discouragement. That kind of active dissuasion, that's heartbreaking, man. In the moment, as it was happening, I was kind of like, I didn't realize that it was happening. Sure. I was just like, why are they being so mean? Then you get to therapy and you're explaining this stuff. Yeah. And it's not even like therapist is like, Mike, maybe this is what happened in your head. You're like, was this happening? Yeah. I think that's what's, what was happening. Now, I want to do a significant pause button okay. on Tower Records. It was an institution. What was that like? I worked at two Tower Records in New York City, one on the Upper East Side, one on the Upper West Side. It really was like being a kid in a candy store. If you are under 30 and you are listening to this conversation, you probably have no concept <laughs> of what it's like to not oh, have shame. immediate access to all of the music there is out there. But I was a kid, maybe getting $10 a week allowance, and to all of a sudden be put into this world where all of the CDs and all of the cassettes were at your fingertips. It was just like a pig jumping into a pile of shit and rolling around <laughs> in it, kind of. It was, it was amazing. It was like working in heaven. It was a corporation. It wasn't a soulless corporation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The name of the game was definitely music all the time. To sort of be in a place that had its finger on the pulse of pop culture. In the biggest, greatest city, it was an amazing experience. And you were at the one... Just around Juilliard and Lincoln Center, right? Correct. Yep. 67th and Broadway. Dude, when I'd come to the city with my mother who worked in the city for a year or two and would commute, that's the only thing I wanted to do is go to that Tower Records because it was floors and floors. It was at least three floors. There was a basement floor, which was CDs. There was the main floor, which was videos and laser discs at the time. Yeah. Uh, I'm assuming eventually DVDs. And then maybe the top floor was classical. This behemoth of a place covering a city block. It was almost like they were the coffee shop of their day. Because if I had nothing to do, I could just spend an hour there on a Friday night because I didn't have enough money to do anything else. Just right. looking, just yeah. looking. One night I bumped into Chris Rock browsing DVDs and I'm 20 something. I'm a kid in New York. Like, oh my God, this town, you know. A cool thing about working in that store is that we were right around a corner from ABC Studios. So when somebody right, did Rosie right. or somebody right. did Good Morning America or, or whatever it was, and they wanted to come in and buy records, they'd come in and buy records. If somebody was playing The Beacon, they would come in oh, before right. or after yeah, and, and, it, and, yeah. and buy records. You'd be working a register and all of a sudden you're ringing up Paul Simon. It was crazy. So you went on to do the journalism thing. You did some for other entities and then you built your own. Writing was always a passion of mine. I loved writing about music. I grew up reading all of the teen magazines and Rolling Stone and Billboard and all of that stuff, Source and Vibe. And yeah. once the internet kind of bloomed, I started writing reviews and just asked questions. 
The real catalyst was uh, there used to be this consumer review site called Epinions where you just signed up. You could write reviews about microwaves. It was actually a very early social media kind of experiment yeah. years before yeah. Facebook and Twitter and Instagram existed. And I kind of got in on the ground floor of that and from there made contacts and ended up writing for Pop Matters at a certain point and then worked as a PR person for a while. So uh, while I'm sending out press releases, I'm also like, oh, hey, do you need somebody to write some stuff for you? I can do this. And it flowed one thing into another. Was there a dream assignment, something you wanted to review, someone you wanted to talk to that you got to do? You know, I used to be afraid of interviews. How come? Talking to people is, particularly, this is before Zoom, I'm much more comfortable video chatting than I am talking to somebody on a phone. So I never really got to do any of those. It's not too late, Mike. It's not too late. You've done Jacob Slichter. You did yeah. Dan Phillips. Yeah. Both those guys are epic and huge in their own way, but they're right. also kind of inside baseball. They're like special corners of the musical world, you know? Glenn is an acquaintance and we have a few friends in common. Jacob is actually one of my best friends. So no it wasn't way, dude. That book saved my life. I was on tour with some friends of mine reading that book and I was kind of hating the tour because I couldn't keep up. I didn't feel good in my body. I liked playing for 25 minutes, but you know, Otherwise, I was like, this is really hard and unpleasant. <laughs> right. I can imagine. But yeah, Jake is family. We met because I basically cold messaged him on Facebook after reading the book. It's interesting how you can just randomly reach out to somebody. And this was, I don't know, 15 years ago. And as a result of that, this great friendship formed. He'll help you with your book. Ha! If I ever write a book, we'll, we'll see if that happens. I'll accept a collection of essays. Ha 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 what was your journey to coming out, to speaking your truth? I knew that I had an interest in other boys slash men before I knew what sex was. Mm. My theory is that most, if not all people are somewhere on a scale and there's not really a binary when it comes to sex. There's a very yeah. small binary when it comes to sexuality. For me, it was kind of always having that in the back of my head, knowing that what I was attracted to was different from what I was supposed to be attracted to and living with a lot of fear growing up in the eighties and early nineties, I did not know another out queer man until I was probably 20 years old. Wow. Yeah. My high school graduating class was 1200 kids. And Ooh. I think there was one guy who said that he was bisexual. So it's a much different time. And this is in New York city. Yeah. There was AIDS hysteria. Yeah. It was stigmatized from every single angle you could think of, whether it was the cultural stigma of being black or the cultural stigma of being an immigrant or, or from the Caribbean or whatever it was, the stigma of AIDS. There was all this stuff that really kept me from accepting, truly, fully accepting my sexuality until much later in life. But I always thought, at least once I got to adulthood, I was like, look, I know that there are a lot of queer dudes out there who play the game and they get married to a woman and they mm. try to raise families and all that stuff. And I was like, I don't think I could live with the guilt of having yeah. to live that lie. During my 20s, probably up until I was 30 or so, I was situationally out. I was out to some friends. I wasn't out at work. I wasn't out to my family. There were other friends that I wasn't out to. It was a very confusing and conflicted time. 
And then at a certain point in life, I was just like, you know what? Fuck it. Life is short. I don't like the idea of living a lie. Having to perpetuate a half truth or a lie is mentally taxing. And I think I got comfortable enough in myself where I was like, look, this is what, what it is. There are people that accept me for who I am. And I'm just going to rock with those people. And what everyone else has to say is irrelevant. Yeah. So that ultimately pushed me completely out of the closet. There are a shit ton of people in the closet still more in the closet than are not in the closet. But I got a thing I was sitting here above me from Billboard magazine that lists my name as an LGBTQIA plus power player in the music industry. Straight people don't get that award. So no. it's not only being recognized for the work I do, but yeah. to be recognized for my identity in addition to the work I do really is an affirmation. And now you work in the record business, but you're also able to bring wellness and diversity into the conversation in a way that, to your previous point, is being celebrated. We operate in a straight white man's world. Mm -hmm. So in order to get ahead in the world, you have to be a bit of a chameleon. And sometimes those chameleonic attributes don't feel comfortable. It feels like you're playing a role or you're sacrificing pieces of yourself in order to fit in. And I'm really grateful that at this stage of my life, I do have, you know, sort of a cultural competency with lots and lots of different people, yeah. but there's never any question about my blackness or my queerness. When I walk into a room, I'm Mike, first of all, but yeah. you know, I also bring all those hats with me and how yeah. present they are. I mean, my blackness doesn't go away. I'm a black person 24 seven but I don't present stereotypically queer. So that doesn't always come up in conversation. And I think because of that, maybe I try to emphasize that a little bit more for the benefit of those who don't or can't or feel like they can't. I'm very happy to have reached the stage in my life when I can bring my whole self and prefer and sometimes demand to bring my whole self into situations. It really comes down to what's most important to you. And for me, if I kept these cloaks on, if I kept code switching, if I mm. kept trying to be somebody that I was not in order to gain favor, I was going to lose my shit. The bottom line is keeping stories straight is very difficult. Yeah. Being honest is not difficult at all Yeah, because yeah. you're just saying things in the moment without having to be like, oh, well, did I say this to this person? Right. And right. does this person know about this? And you know, yeah. so uh, you just got to put it all out there and let the pieces fall where they may. I mean, I've been lucky in that I haven't had anything super damaging happen as a result of being authentically who I am. And this is still a fairly new thing. So the bottom could drop out at any time. But from a mental health perspective, I feel so much lighter. So you got 100 plus episodes of this podcast. Yeah, the episode I just published today was episode 103. Is there a unifying theory? Is there a key takeaway? What are the things that you're hearing frequently from your guests? One key takeaway is that the learning doesn't stop. Mm. I'd have conversations with my mother and she'd always be like, well, I'm the adult. I know what I'm talking about. Right. And I, I sort of got this thing in my head that when you turn 21 and you turn 25, like you have the key to life. You know everything. You can tell everybody everything. And you don't stop learning until they put you in the ground. 
whether you're learning about yourself or learning about others or doing book learning, whatever it is, there's always yeah. something that somebody can teach you. There's always something somebody can learn. Another thing is that there's no such thing as a binary. There are very few things in life that are absolutely black or absolutely white. I think you're born and you die and that's it. Everything else is a variable. And I think a lot of my guests, their stories confirm that that there's a lot of gray area that never really gets discussed because particularly in America, the word nuance is just yeah. never brought up. It's either this or that. It's yeah. not the fact that 10% live in this, 10% live in that, and 80% sort of live in the middle of this and that. Yeah. The thing that really makes me the most excited about the podcast, the thing that I love discovering the most is that everybody has a story. Yeah. Everybody has a story if people really let themselves be themselves, everybody has an interesting story. Hearing all of these different perspectives enriches me as a person. Like it makes me more empathetic. It makes me a smarter person. Being able to share your story with others and have others share their stories with you will do the same for the person that's listening. There is so much value in empathy and hearing about what others go through and just trying to put yourself in the shoes of other people. How do you think about the work, especially with polarization and crazy gun violence and just ridiculous theories that are not based on any reality? What do you tell people when you're trying to find a solutions and strategies? It's such a rough conversation to have because it's almost like you don't know where to start. There is absolute good in the world. I don't think that there's a way you can reach people in mass. I think you start one-on-one. -on -one. Talk about yourself, ask questions, develop the empathy button. Just try to look at things from a human perspective yeah. and realize that there is no unifying experience here other than us all being human. What would you tell that little boy now? I would say, don't give up, believe in yourself. Inside, I knew who I was, but I didn't think that I was going to be able to be who I was and be successful. I was like, I'm black, I'm queer, I deal with mental illnesses. Either I'm going to become a victim of violence before I'm 40, I'm going to die of AIDS before I'm 40, or I'm going to kill myself before I'm 40. I didn't have a plan for what happens after 40, and now it's staring me in my face. I'm like, I, and I'm healthy, relatively speaking. I'm relatively successful. I've got all this stuff happening. This was not in the, the book. What do I do? Part of me being the way as open as I am now and me being as authentic as I am now is because I hit 40 and I was like, oh, this is bonus time. And I want to leave this world with as few regrets as I can possibly have. Friends and Neighbors is an essential industries production in association with Wagner Brothers. Learn more at friendsandneighborsshow.com. And please help your friends and neighbors discover our show by sharing, liking, commenting, and rating. Really, it makes a difference. Mr. Rogers and Me is available on Apple TV, Amazon Prime, and PBS DVD. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends. Lifelong friends.